Good afternoon. Um, uh, you're, um, thank you for joining us at Comparative Histories of the Book. Um, this session posits that comparativism invigorates our methodologies and is especially essential to understanding books. We envision this session as an opportunity primarily for discussion, um, to discuss in particular the implications of comparative practices as well as the mechanics of such work. To this end, our panelists will present 10-minute papers, which will then be briefly and brilliantly synthesized by our respondent, Will Null. No pressure. Um, will um, has been instrumental in unearthing the significance of works like the Archimedes Codex, and he is a champion of manuscript digitization ev ev everywhere. Um, he is the director of the Kislak Center for Special Collections, Rare Books and Manuscripts, as well as the director of the Schoenberg Institute for Manuscript Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. At present, he, in, he is involved in the Penn Libraries project to crowdsource the sorting and transcription of the Cairo Geniza. To participate, um, you just need to Google Scribes of the Geniza, and you too can join the 20,000 Geniza enthusiasts making over 90,000 classifications of 30,000 objects. We'll always think small. Um, changing the way we expose massive bibliography corpora to the world. So Will is serving as our respondent. Caroline is going to introduce all of our panelists, and then they'll come up one by one, give their papers. We'll hold all questions to the end. Okay, so um, the order of papers uh, is not the same order we're going to go in in the book, but I'll go through the introductions in the order we're going to go with the papers, okay? After I scroll, we're good. Um, so our first presenter will be Birgit Brander Rasmussen, who joins us from the English department at Binghamton University. Her scholarship focuses on race, writing, and coloniality in American literature. She authored the award-winning book, Queequeg's Coffin, Indigenous Literacies and Early American Literature, which came out from Duke in 2012. She is currently at work on two book projects, an anthology of contemporary captivity narratives, and a monograph entitled Signs of Resistance, Signs of Resurgence, Indian Pictography and American Literature, 901 to the Digital Age, and her paper is From History of the Book to History of the Awikigan, a Native American Studies Approach to Comparative Book History. Next, we'll have a paper from Paul Dilley. Uh, he holds a joint appointment in Religious Studies and Classics and is a member of the Public Humanities and the Digital World Initiative at the University of Iowa. Paul founded Big Ancient Mediterranean with Sarah Bonda, a DH project for the coordinated exploration and visualization of linked geospatial network and textual data related to the ancient world. And his uh, paper is entitled Cultural and Textual Exchanges, the Manuscript Across Pre-Modern Eurasia. Next, we'll have a paper from Amy Holmes Takchundarpa. Uh, she is in the Religious Studies Department and the East Asian Studies Program at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Her research explores the cosmological and material interactions that have shaped the cultures and histories of the Himalayas on a regional and global level. She is currently working on a book that explores the history of language and print across different parts of the classical Tibetan language-using world that spans East, Inner, and South Asia. 
and her t uh, paper is entitled Decentering Himalayan Buddhist Book History, the Influence of Location and Peripherality in the Creation of Innovations in Book Technology. And last, we have a paper from Melissa Adler, who is in Information and Media Studies at Western University in London, Ontario. Her research concerns the history of library classifications as they intersect with state and cultural discourses about race and sexuality. Her book, Cruising the Library, Perversities in the Organization of Knowledge from Fordham 2017, so pretty recent, is a study of the history of sexuality through the lens of Library of Congress classifications. Her current project, tentatively called Organizing Knowledge to Save the World, critiques knowledge organization systems and examines the role that such systems play in securing national identity and memory. And her paper is a book is being cataloged. So thank you to all of us and thank you to our, our um, panelists. We look forward to hearing their papers. start by thanking uh, Megan and Caroline for organizing this panel and for all their work that they put in um, to the conference. Uh, thank you, Will, for reading and commenting on my paper. And, and I would like to uh, recognize, as is customary in Native American studies, that we are on the ancestral lands of the Lenape people. Among scholars of indigenous literacies and books, the Lenape are rather famous for their pictographic records and Lenape hieroglyphics as uh, they're called in colonial sources, were used among the Delawares, the Chippewas, Mingos, Shawanos, and Wyandots, according to John Heckewelder. In my first book, I track how the encounter between European and indigenous peoples in the Americas brought into contact uh, radically different but equally rich literate cultures. Over the past decades or so, we have seen a significant shift in North American literary studies as scholars, early Americanists in particular, increasingly recognize and engage indigenous forms of writing. This work draws to a significant degree on earlier work by Mesoamericanists like uh, Patricia Hill Boone, among others. Unfortunately, such insights have yet to be fully engaged by the field of book history. The premier journal in the field, entitled Book History, defines itself as an annual scholarly journal devoted to every aspect of the history of the book broadly defined as the creation, dissemination, reception, and use of print, I mean script, print, and mediacy. In North America, uh, David Hall has been a leader in the field of book history and in 2014 published a magisterial five-volume history of the book in America. But this history remains wedded to a European definition of the book and to a history of a book that privileges colonial perspectives, definitions, and media. 
So my aim today is to counter the erasure of indigenous literary culture in the history of the book and to suggest how increased dialogue between the fields of book history and Native American studies can yield new understandings, both of book history, Native American studies, early American studies, and for that matter, world literature. Um, there is convincing evidence that the history of the book in North America should begin centuries before the arrival of Europeans. According to Lakota knowledge keeper Baptiste Good, the written story of white buffalo cow woman bringing corn and the sacred pipe to the Dakota hails from 901 AD, that's the periodization. His famous winter count begins at a time when, quote, all the tribes of the Dakota nation were encamped together, as was then their custom, before their move west to the Mississippi, where they became the Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota nations. Good is best known for his pictographic history of Lakota life during the Great Transformation caused by colonial settlement between 1700 and 1879. But his manuscript also includes a 12-chapter period uh, uh, history of the period 901 to 1700 AD, and an introduction from 1856 in the form of a vision narrative. Good annotated his text in the 19th century, adding Roman numerals and alphabetic script. So it is a, a very interesting sort of hybrid text that uh, also accumulated over the course of uh, hundreds of years. How might scholars like myself make sense of this immensely important text and reconstruct its literary and semiotic history? We might begin, I propose, by using the methods of book historians to trace, among other things, a material history that illuminates the ancient textual traditions informing this section of the winter count. A buffalo figures importantly or prominently on each of the uh, sort of chapters or generational cycles uh, of the book. Um, or of the story, we might say, of the Lakota, indicating that the buffalo had become central to Sioux life and literary culture during this time. Buffalo skin eventually became the medium on which the Dakota and other Plains people recorded both communal histories and autobiographical narratives until settlers brought muslin fabric and paper. So animal skin, sort of like parchments. Um, this early written version of the coming of white buffalo calf woman can then be seen as a, as a foundational link between the sacred, the historical, the literary, and perhaps also the national. And by here I mean uh, Lakota uh, and Dakota nations, not the US. The format of the generational history, which is uh, full page, single page narratives, may indicate that the most ancient section of Good's record was originally recorded on a medium that was more paper-like, smaller and square, such as birch bark. This was the surface on which indigenous peoples in the woodlands and in the northeast recorded pictographic narratives. Before the move to and across the Mississippi, the Dakota lived in relative, uh, relative close proximity to groups like the Ojibwe, who are known to have produced sacred scrolls such 12 such scrolls were actually recently discovered at the Smithsonian. Many other scrolls were reportedly destroyed by missionaries, as also happened in Mexico, Central and South America, and many others were buried with their owner. Since the first of Good's pages record what might be called liturgical literature or sacred history, a material culture analysis might lead us to wonder if Dakota literary culture prior to the move west was similar to Ojibwe literary culture. If this is the case, we might next begin to trace the relationship between pictography in the woodlands and in the Donlin from whence the Ojibwe originally migrated. The 
East Coast, Northeast Coast. According to Abenaki scholar and early Americanist Lisa Brooks, wampum literacy came to the East Coast from the Great Lakes, where the Haudenosaunee linked the emergence of wampum, the League of Peace, and the founding document of the Confederacy, the Hiawatha Belt. It is not currently known from whence pictography emerged. It may have traveled east with wampum, but ancient petroglyphs suggest pictography existed in the Northeast long before wampum literacy. 19th century Penobscot writer Joseph Nicolar links the emergence of pictographic writing among his people to genealogy. Eventually, this writing system was elaborated so that messages could be carved on trees for others to read, indicating a high degree of um, literacy. Nicolar describes a few pictographs, but doesn't provide much further information. Now, it's possible that such pictographic writing then originated in the Northeast and moved south and west along trade and migration routes. Ojibwe migration stories place them in the St. Lawrence area prior to their move west, where they encountered and eventually displaced Dakota. Conversely, pictography might have traveled uh, north from Mexico along with corn, which is represented as foundational in Nicolar's narrative of Penobscot ancient history and in Batiste Good's narrative of Dakota history as well. So time does not uh, permit me to elaborate further on this research here, except to note that the woodlands in the late 17th and early 18th century, I believe were a literary crossroad where Ojibwe, Dakota and Lenape literary cultures circulated and likely cross-pollinated. The Lenape were displaced by settlers in the 18th century, whereas the Dakota migrated west in increments over a longer period of time. According to Good, they paused on the eastern banks of the Mississippi for some time before moving towards the plains, where the Lakota, the western Sioux, eventually settled. In Good's Winter Count, the narrative from 901 to 1700 is located graphically inside a circle of teepees that seem to represent the community whose history is recorded on the pages. A singular figure outside of the circle seems to represent the storyteller, scribe, historian, or knowledge keeper who is present outside the circle on all the pages. In 1351, the storyteller is depicted holding a bundle of sticks, likely similar to the pictographic sticks transcribed by Raffinesque in the most famous example of indigenous pictography, a Lenape text known as the Willama Loom. In Good's Winter Count, all subsequent full-page chapters show this figure holding a bundle of sticks. Perhaps this is when historical records appeared among the Dakota, in which case such pictographic sticks may predate birch bark paper. And I'll uh, wrap up. In my current book project entitled Signs of Resistance, Signs of Resurgence, I then trace the intertextual relationship between Ojibwe, Dakota, and Lenape pictographic literary cultures through the 18th century and argue that Good's Winter Count is a very important part of the puzzle because it enables us to theorize the transition from birch bark to hide-based pictography that comes to distinguish Dakota from Ojibwe forms of writing. And uh, since I'm, I'm apparently sort of out of time, I'll, I'll sort of wrap up by just saying that Good's epic narrative with its references to uh, pictographic sticks its full-page generational histories, and its post-1700 uh, winter count tracks changes and continuities in communication technologies over time, and thus can serve as an important history or source of indigenous book history. But I imagine, and this will be my sort of closing words, uh, my interlocutors asking, are these materials books? And so that, of course, depends on how we define the book. 
As I noted at the beginning of my talk, the field of book history has in the past been wedded to European definitions of the book. However, Lisa Brooks gives us an important tool to indigenize book history in North America with the term Awikigan. According to Brooks, Awikigan once described, quote, Birchbark messages, maps, and scroll, but later also came to encompass books and letters. So I believe there's much to gain by bringing book history and Native American studies into dialogue if book history can expand the parameters so that indigenous materials are not excluded by definition. And I hope I have made a convincing case for what we might then gain by moving from the history of the book to the history of the Awikigan. Thank you. Okay, so thank you to the moderators and respondent. It's an honor to be a part of this panel in what is surely a momentous conference. And what I'm going to give you now is just a quick roadshow uh, that myself and my colleague, uh, Melissa Morton, who couldn't be here today, are sort of uh, zooming out across the country to uh, let everybody know about our Mellon Sawyer seminar, which has just concluded uh, from 2016 to 2017 at the University of Iowa on cultural and textual exchanges, the manuscript across pre-modern Eurasia. So we were uh, lucky enough to have the support to have a kind of standing group of about 20 academics at Iowa and Grinnell uh, and elsewhere who met over the course of the academic year over a series of uh, small kind of mini conferences where we invited specialists in a number of areas of uh, book history in Eurasia and Africa, all of which uh, more or less before 1500. And to complement this, we did a number of uh, hands-on workshops where we actually practiced building models at the University of Iowa's Center for the Book. So among the questions we sought to answer, or at least to uh, look into, to study the emergence of new manuscript formats, materials, scripts, and technologies in single geographical or cultural regions, to study the cultural dynamics related to the spread of manuscript formats, materials, scripts, and technologies from one region to another, and finally to create digital resources to document and examine this information. So we're sort of uh, on step number three at the moment, uh, moving forward slowly and with caution. So uh, we have a website, Eurasian Manuscripts, hosted at the University of Iowa's Digital Studio. Uh, right now you can go there for video recordings, uh, to see the lectures. We didn't take the actual uh, seminar conversation afterwards. Uh, then there are blogs and photos of the meetings and the hands-on sessions where we did things like build Borchbark manuscripts. And if you want to do that, you can get uh, a kind of sense of uh, how we went about doing that. And then uh, finally, a couple of things under development now, uh, a basic kind of bibliography of pre-modern Eurasian manuscripts by region. And uh, most importantly, I think, uh, is a data set of uh, basically information on the pre-modern manuscript, which is going to be interactable. And I'm going to talk a bit about that kind of interface. So uh, as far as what we're hoping to include in the database, uh, we want uh, earliest known examples. This is just our initial uh, goal, is to collect the earliest known examples of key manuscript formats, material supports, languages, and scripts, so globally and in specific regions. We're also interested in documenting important discoveries, manuscript caches like Nag Hammadi, Gilgit, uh, Mwangdui, 
the Garama Gospels, Dun Hoang Caves, etc. Uh, other certain uh, interesting things for cultural exchange, like bilingual manuscripts. Uh, we're also focusing uh, early on on prestige manuscripts, so early uh, illuminated classical works in the West, uh, and also uh, equivalents uh, elsewhere when uh, in certain instances our definition of manuscript is broad, so we're looking also at epigraphic entries where they give us information about early examples of scripts. And then finally, we're looking for key manufacturing sites for things like paper making. So kind of a uh, broad uh, data set, uh, including various kinds of metadata for each individual manuscript, so including information on language and script, uh, form and format, uh, material support, when known, place of production or place of discovery, often not the same place, of course, approximate dates, political context, religious affiliation, uh, and then other sorts of things like is the manuscript multilingual, is it illustrated, is there a colophon, etc. So uh, all of this is certainly not knowable for any given manuscript, uh, but it represents the sort of uh, scope that we're looking for as far as what the interface is going to look like. And the goal here, uh, really, when I was developing this, I see it primarily, uh, in the first instance anyway, as a resource for things like high school global history courses uh, or any kind of uh, initial uh, uh, kind of research steps for those who are interested in uh, pursuing such questions further. As far as the interface goes, uh, it is going to be built on the same software architecture as uh, the Big Ancient Mediterranean project that I developed with Sarah Bond. Uh, one of the modules here shows the Iowa canon of Latin authors and works, which is basically uh, a way of getting at data by uh, taking a first geospatial visualization so you can choose uh, a, a set of authors or genres in a particular time period uh, and then zoom in on the map uh, and then further explore those docs on the map. I'm going to try to run through this, uh, make it a little bit clearer. Uh, the interface is based on a map of Eurasia and then uh, there are slideable panels on four sides. Uh, we haven't actually gotten the Eurasian manuscript database running, so a clarification. I'm just showing you what it will look like. Uh, the, the, the same layout is going to feature in the manuscript database when it's online. So there's going to be a faceted search on the left where you can choose things like uh, time, location, manuscript format, etc. Uh, there's going to be a drop-down timeline where you can focus on particular time periods and actually the timeline as it stands now is gobbledygook, but basically there are going to be vertical sections uh, with each uh, layer corresponding to a particular region, and so you can kind of uh, uh, manually select a particular timeline that you're interested in, or actually uh, choose it by typing on the left hand. And on the right hand panel, uh, once you've selected, let's say you want to look at uh, book formats between 500 and 700 CE across Eurasia, you will get a bunch of hits. You can scroll around the map, and if you want to focus in on a particular site like Turfan, then uh, by clicking on that site, you will then get a, uh, a more kind of detailed breakdown 
of the uh, manuscripts from that region that you've selected. So this uh, is an example of uh, what's going to be in the right-hand panel. This is uh, early Manichaean. I'm a, uh, among my interests are the Manichaeans, a, a highly transnational early religion. Uh, so this is a manuscript from the ninth century in the Tarim Basin in China. Uh, you will get the metadata uh, and you can scroll down to see further examples. And then a quick word on the images we're using. Uh, where possible, we're going to link to uh, digital images that are already available. Uh, where not, uh, we're doing uh, sort of uh, what we think is fair use anyway, although I'm happy to talk about this. Uh, for example, the Gilgit manuscripts, the, the covers are uh, unavailable online, but are uh, to be found in uh, earlier print publications. So we are uh, using those to try to uh, get those out there. And then uh, the final part of the interface is going to be uh, drop down uh, bottom. The bottom panel will include textual information related to uh, the search that you've done. Uh, that is actually just filler. Uh, it doesn't really. Uh, the, the sort of information that you're going to get in that bottom section is uh, textual information that uh, are basically attestations for a particular material or format, especially in cases where those attestations are earlier than any surviving materials that we have. So that's the purpose of including those textual references. And then, uh, so, as far as uh, special uh, data sets that we're looking at, my colleague Melissa Morton is an expert in book binding, so she's working on a specialized uh, database of uh, book binding techniques, and we're also going to have uh, sort of specialized photographic uh, documentation of particular book types, uh, much of which we've uh, we created in the, in the UI or lab. Uh, as far as additional uh, long-term targets of the database after we meet our kind of initial collection, uh, we're looking to document uh, all manuscripts for which uh, scientific and technical work has been done. So it would be really great, I know, for the Western manuscripts that I work on if there was a database where uh, radiocarbon dating and ink testing were kind of centralized in one place, materials analysis, that sort of thing. Uh, and then we're in sort of active discussion uh, with uh, various other projects in terms of incorporating uh, their data sets into, uh, uh, into our database as well. Um, Climate is something that is more uh, Melissa's more into, so I will uh, I will skip that uh, for now. Uh, there are various technical and methodological challenges inherent in a digital project like that. Uh, we're using linked data whenever that's possible. It's not always possible. Uh, there are all sorts of issues with modeling all kinds of uncertainty, and we're part of a broader visualization just uh, and uh, data analysis discussion about that. Uh, developing typologies is uh, inherently uh, kind of doing violence and in, in a sense to uh, individual manuscripts and so uh, there's also uh, issues around that and then uh, I will wrap up because I only have one minute or less uh, just with a, a quick uh, 
description for those interested of the kind of technical specs for our project. So thank you. Good afternoon. Um, it's very fortuitous that um, I'm after Paul Dilley uh, because as well as thanking our gracious and intrepid organisers and our respondent, um, I also want to thank Paul because what I'm talking about today was directly impacted by my participation in the Mel and Sawyer seminar that he just talked to you about. Um, I went from doing a project about, isn't it interesting that we find in the Tibetan world lots of different types of technologies for printing, through to, oh, I made some Tibetan books and some Tibetan paper, and suddenly I'm thinking about it in a totally different way. Yeah. So thank you to Paul and his colleagues for thank that. Um, and there's a direct influence on what I'm going to talk about today, which is thinking about place. So when I first saw the call for papers, I started to think about how can we put um, book histories into conversation with one another? in ways that are more representative and they think more about um, on a global level when sometimes, as our first panelists talked about, we don't necessarily have taxonomies that actually are inclusive. How do we have some starting points for thinking about the connections between different types of books and different modes of communication? Um, so today, the thing I'm thinking about is place. Place as being a fundamental way of thinking about um, the shaping of different types of textual corpuses, um, and that's to be all-inclusive from manuscripts through to printed technologies. Um, so I thought about this in terms of the uh, Tibetan cultural world, which if I show you on that, huge amount of the world historically used uh, Tibetan language, right? And so I say the Tibetan language using world because to call it the Tibetan cultural world in some ways is very problematic, uh, since a number of contemporary states within this world don't think of themselves as being at all Tibetan, right? People in Bhutan and Mongolia don't think of themselves as Tibetan, but they continue to use scripts that were based and that were formed by uh, the use of classical Tibetan. So in a lot of ways, classical Tibetan was a lot like Arabic um, or Greek or Sanskrit. There was a cosmopolis, um, as Sheldon Pollock talks about with Sanskrit, uh, used for classical Tibetan throughout uh, Eastern, uh, Inner and South Asia. Um, and so I started to think about where, how place um, really shaped what was published, what was printed, what was written, and how different places throughout this vast space um, took to these writing systems and why it is that they took to these writing systems when they had their own indigenous literatures. Why is it that people began to write in classical Tibetan? Um, for today, I'm just going to talk briefly about why it is that they produced what they produced and how that shape, um, place really helped to shape this. And I think that a lot of people in the audience can give me very generative and helpful suggestions about how I might think about this more broadly comparatively to outside of the Tibetan language using world, uh, to see um, space and place as being fundamental to shaping global and comparative book histories. Um, so I start off with the story of one of the earliest uh, major uh, woodblock printing projects in the Tibetan cultural world. In 1294, this takes place in Dadu, in uh, the capital of the Yuan dynasty. Um, under the patronage of the Mongols, and in particular the Mongol queens, who decide to publish a copy of the Kalachakra Tantra um, in tribute to, to Kublai Khan, uh, the grandson of the great Chinggis, um, as a way of honouring him when he dies. Um, and so they put together this publication project. Um, there was already woodblock printing of Tibetan uh, text by this point. It appears in about uh, the 12th century, and interestingly enough, Shisha, a place which is not central to what we think of as being the Tibetan cultural world at all. It's somewhere along the Silk Road. Um, 
And so we begin to see the entrance of this new woodblock technology around then. And so by the 13th century, we see these Mongol queens taking up this technology very enthusiastically. And we know, though, that the early people who actually did this printing were not Tibetans. They were Chinese. And we know this from, if we look at this um, publication, on the right-hand side, there's Chinese script, uh, which kind of suggests to us that the people who did this early printing project didn't actually read Tibetan that they were just doing the carving and that they were keeping the page numbers by including Chinese script on them. So this already tells us something interesting about place because Dadu is, of course, contemporary Beijing, right? The name has changed, but it was a place that was very important to the Yuan Dynasty, a major uh, cosmopolitan political space with the crossing of lots of different cultures, the crossing of lots of different religious communities and scripts. And so they took up Tibetan as being one of their very important religious scripts. Um, so this is just one example of the way that place influenced the creation of this particular project. Um, if it hadn't been for the Mongols being interested in Tibetan Buddhism, if it hadn't been for the pre-existence of skilled technicians who could undertake this type of publication project, we wouldn't have had the Kalakachakra Tantra. Interestingly enough, as a sort of side note, what is in this Tantra? It talks about the conquering of the world which is you know, very intentional on the part of the Mongol emperors. Their queens wanted to remember Kublai as being somebody who literally was so powerful, powerful that he conquered space and time, right? So he's not just conquering people, but also time itself through the Kalachakra Tantra, okay? Um, so this is but one example of many that I found throughout the Tibetan cultural world that developed in places that were not necessarily political centres for Tibetans themselves. They were political centres maybe for other groups, and sometimes they weren't necessarily political centres at all. And I became interested in not only thinking about space, but also thinking about uh, peripherality, or thinking about places that are not central spaces, and the way that these don't always neatly map on uh, to ideas about political or economic centres. We don't necessarily find printing centres and knowledge distribution and uh, promotion centres in the same places as we find economic or political centres, and I became interested in why. So another example of the way that place really informs uh, the making of different printing and uh, written projects in the Tibetan world is in Sikkim. This is yet another example of place being important because in Sikkim in the 18th century, this is a relatively new state that comes together in the 17th century in 1642 um, under the auspices of this blue guy here named Latsunam Kajikni who comes from Tibet and says that he's going to create this the state. He doesn't make himself the king, he chooses a local farmer to be the king of the Namgyal dynasty that he establishes. Um, and one of the very interesting thing he, things he does before he goes back to Tibet is he goes up into Western Sikkim and pulls out some treasure texts from the landscape. So this is very much tied to place in the sense that these texts are from the landscape of Sikkim and they instruct the Sikkimese people on how to go about their religious practices and how to propitiate their landscape appropriately. In particular, the mighty mountain, mountain um, Kanchenzerna, or as we know of it today, Kanchenjunga, the third highest mountain in the world. So this is um, what Latin Namkai Jigmi finds is the instructions on how to do these religious practices. The location of the, lo of the introduction of these texts themselves is important, but what's more important is that Sikkim had the uh, materials for actually creating this textual corpus and promoting it. Um, this, I think, is where place becomes important. In Sikkim's many jungles, we find Edwurya gardenia, this very, very important uh, type of plant. Uh, locally, it's known as dumtik. 
Uh, so this dumpstick plant is used widely even today uh, to make straw. In fact, in my family's backyard in Western Sikkim, we still make um, straw uh, and flax ropes out of this. And so when I was talking to people about making paper, they were like, oh yeah, lots of people do that historically. There's nothing unique about it whatsoever. So this was very funny to me because we still use it all the time in everyday life, right? But also, historically, it was used for making paper. So in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, sorry, the 17th and 18th centuries, when Latsam Nankai Jigmi and the kings of Sikkim are consolidating their power, they're also going about the printing of the Rigsan Sodrup, of these texts <laughs> which instruct Sikkimese people on how to appreciate the landscape. And they're making the paper for this enormous project from all of these plants that are widely available in the Sikkimese landscape. Now historically, um, Tibetan papering or Nepalese paper, paper making, as it's often called by um, professional paper makers and bookmakers, um, is quite straightforward to make. It's known for being very easy. It's basically uh, put, smashed up and put into a congealed mass and then spread across a type of, to the, to the lower part there, we can see a type of frame. Um, and then what's left on the top is put out to dry on these frames as well. Um, nowadays, we see traditional paper still being made in Sikkim, but interestingly, this is not actually traditional Sikkimese paper. This, thank you. This is actually um, Japanese paper. So we can talk more about why people are calling traditional Sikkimese paper Japanese, traditional Japanese paper Sikkimese paper uh, in the group Q&A. It's kind of an interesting story. Okay, so what was available in the Sikkimese landscape was what was important to the creation of this corpus, that you had the raw material for creating this corpus. Another story goes to the 20th century, uh, to the Kingdom of Bhutan. This was also a period of state consolidation. In 1907, we see the rise of the first Bhutanese kings. And with them, uh, the, prom the uh, promulgation of a new type of religious tradition. The Drukpa Kagyu had been in power in Bhutan since the 17th century. This was a particular tradition of Tibetan-derived Buddhism. Um, in the 20th century, the new Bhutanese kings who come to power are not necessarily interested in promulgating older forms of Drupakagi Buddhism. They want to promulgate new forms in order to create this new state that can strongly consolidate itself against Western imperialism. So what they do is they start to look for other lineages of Drupakagi Buddhism. And in particular, they look to the lineage of Thukten Shri, who is on the right there, who was based in eastern Tibet and actually kind of on the border with uh, present-day Arunachal Pradesh um, in India. Uh, and he had also a bunch of unique texts. And so the first king of Bhutan sent students to study with him, and they came back, and in the 1970s, we find the publication of his collected works in Bhutan. And this was a very um, intentional act by the kings of Bhutan to create this new form of religious legitimacy. So patronage was also an important condition for the creation of textual uh, production. Um, finally, just as I end up here, we see even this trend continue into modern times with new types of technology. So the first ever Tibetan language newspaper was not published in the area that we know historically as being the state of Tibet, but was actually published in Kalimpong, a small town in northeast India, along a very important trade uh, trail. In 1904, Kalimpong opened to become a trademark for the British Empire, uh, and so it was a mixture of many people who came together in Kalimpong. We know that there were missionaries there, that there were British administrators there, we know that there were Chinese, Tibetan, different uh, Himalayan traders that all came together there. Um, and so the first ever Tibetan newspaper was published there using new lithographic technology by a Ladakhi Christian 
who got his technology from the Church of Scotland. Um, and so he published this first ever Tibetan newspaper. It actually wasn't very interested in Christianity per se. It was much more interested in spreading ideas about contemporary news. But what was material to place here was that there was this coming together of peoples, the availability of new technology, and the availability of a lot of ideas from around the world that allowed the Kalimpong to really become this important place uh, for Tibetan language media in the 20th century. Today, this trend continues. We find, sorry, I had lots of examples if people want to look at them later. I'm happy to show them to you what we find in the Tibetan language newspapers because they're really fascinating. But even in the 21st century, we find uh, Tibetan writers are based throughout the world because of the internet, which kind of de-places place in some, t in some ways. Um, but also, place continues to have political significance. So some of the most famous writers today in the Tibetan language and also just in the Tibetan ethnic world who write in Chinese um, are people who are based in places that are uh, politically contested, um, that are on the peripheries of what we consider to be the Tibetan cultural world. So place remains very important, and I look forward to your feedback and to your ideas about how place can be seen as being a generative space for considering comparative histories of the book. Thank you. I was just in a session before lunch about um, the materiality of text, and it was a beautiful session, and there's a question that seared into my brain about performance and performativity of texts and, um, and what that means in the context of libraries that are sort of houses that uh, contain information. And so what I kind of, I guess the way that this presentation is speaking to some of those conversations is I'm arguing that library classifications are in fact performative texts that have a bearing on and, and affect and influence how other texts, the texts that we uh, go to the library looking for, uh, the classifications have, a, have their own performativity that affect the circulation of other texts. And so I will start. So I'm responding to and reframing these questions about book history and what is a book and so on um, by offering questions about the history of classifications of books. Um, I am focusing on the Library of Congress system, but we could do this with others as well. And I encourage you to think of classifications themselves as books, especially if we look to the original classifications. And anybody who has worked in a library knows that Library of Congress subject headings come in these big, massive, five-volume sets of red books. Um, so they are very much books um, that organize other books. Um, I read library classifications with an eye toward their production and use and the political and cultural milieu out of which they are created. Um, and I ask things like, what does a classificatory stamp and the location of a book tell us about what that book is about, how that book is to be read, how its subject is imagined to fit within a wider narrative, 
what does a classification system tell us about an imagined domain, whether that is a field of subjects, territory, or a nation? Um, library shelves, catalogs, classifications, and so on, are, are information storage, retrieval, and display technologies uh, that I use as primary sources about uh, books or collections, imagined or real readership, and the ways in which the classification and catalogs carry a set of values. Um, and so to enter into this question of the cultural and political aspects of classification, I take the example of Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick's Epistemology of the Closet, which was published in 1990. And I use this case for a number of reasons. One, Sedgwick says a lot of things about libraries and the performativity of texts, but also because Epistemology of the Closet is widely regarded as one of the foundational books in the field of queer studies, queer theory and the history of sexuality. It kind of marks a point where we do the history of sexuality differently. And so, if you will, for those who are not historians of sexuality, um, I'll just read the book description from the, the one, 2008 um, reissue of the book. And it says, since the late 1980s, queer studies and queer theory have become vital to the intellectual and political life of the United States. This has been due in no small degree to the influence of Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick's critically acclaimed epistemology of the closet. Working from classic texts of European and American writers, including Melville, James, Misha, Proust, and Wilde, Sedgwick analyzes a turn of the century historical moment in which sexual orientation became as important a demarcation of personhood as gender had been for centuries. So in other words, epistemology Epistemology of the Closet analyzes literary text through a queer theoretical lens before queer theory had actually even been invented. Um, and the classificatory acts performed on this book provide a sense of the processes by which libraries participate in discipline formation and how categories affect the circulation of normative ideas about sexuality and difference. At the time of the book's publication, there was no way to anticipate the monumental role it was going to play in the field of sexuality studies. Indeed, queer theory had only been called into being as a terminology a few months earlier as the title of a conference in Santa Cruz, California. And Publishers Weekly, a leading source of book reviews that guide librarians' selection choices, suggested that the book was inaccessible and did not recommend it. And so imagine for a moment, if you are a librarian, how do you begin to reduce epistemology of the closet to a single subject within any discipline? Um, and so catalogers are, of course, always faced with certain challenges of interdisciplinary and, interdisciplinary and so on. Um, and in 1990, available choices within the Library of Congress classification included sections in the social sciences, HQ76, HQ71, um, for homosexuality and sexual deviation. In the P section, uh, there were emerging subdisciplines in areas of languages and literature with homosexuality as a subtopic. Um, depending on the scope and purpose of a particular library, you might put it some, somewhere else, right? Philosophy, political science, cultural anthropology, history. 
But in fact, Sedgwick actually contacted the Library of Congress directly to appeal their classificatory decision. Uh, they placed it in PS 374.H63. And H63 uh, is sort of a subdivision for homosexuality. But this positioned epistemology of the closet with books uh, in the field of history of American literature and an apparently hurried staff note in the, collect in the catalog record um, reads, quote, author protested mildly at PS class since includes, she says, in parentheses, <laughs> Irish, British, German, and French as well. Chapters are on Melville, Wilde, James, and Proust, um, end quote. So in spite of the fact that the class PN56 H57 was an available option designated for the topic of homosexuality within theory and general <coughs> literature, as were a variety of other possible choices, uh, her objection was all but ignored. And so to this day, you will find the book shelved with American literature in libraries all around the globe. The Library of Congress produced the original record for the book while it was still in publication. And by virtue of a process called copy cataloging, um, this has been replicated um, over and over. And I've investigated this. I've worked there are catalogs in Hong Kong and Toronto and all over the world that um, place the book in the same location. In her 1986 essay, A Poem Is been Being Written, which is a play on Freud's uh, A Child Is Being Beaten, and which I'm playing with too, uh, Cedric wrote about her own encounters with the organizing practices in the library, hinting that cataloging effectively withholds information and stifles interpretation. She suggested that the erasures of potential homosexual readings in the library are instructive in doing the history of sexuality. Quote, she wrote, uh, oh, no, she wrote quote, the women's subject, author, and title catalogs frustrate and educate the young idea. So indeed, she's saying, that the classification actually affects how we are able to do and how we can find subjects in the library, how we're able to do history, essentially. It seems that her experiences of libraries informed one of the central arguments she subsequently developed in Epistemology of the Closet, that the performative aspects of texts and reader relations are, quote, sites of definitional creation, violence, and rupture in relation to particular readers, particular institutional circumstances. Sedgwick's theorizing of homosexual readings was, known, was in no small part inspired by the disciplinary acts that hide queer interpretations from desiring readers and from her own frustrating visits to the library where she found literary works and their relations reduced in ways that pro prohibited intertextual encounters. Uh, the relations of power that give the categories force indeed have resulted in the formation of something we now know as the HQ section or any other section that you might be interested in. The tools and techniques involved in determining where books are to be placed on library shelves and naming them in authorized terms are classificatory mechanisms that reduce texts and the readings to discipline subjects. The books on the shelves organized according to standard systems not only reflect and give form to the academic disciplines, but the categories that designate what library books are about, I would argue, also actively produce, reproduce, and privilege certain subjects 
and disciplinary norms. The temporal and spatial dimensions and the relations of power at play in the library are tied to relations of power in cultural and state discourses. In interestingly, the history of librarianship parallels that of sexuality studies. And these fields intersect in critical ways in the creation of classifications and definitions of sexual perversion and other sexual deviations. Elaborate taxonomies were central to both the scientific study of sexuality and the scientific management of libraries. For sexologists, the goal was to organize sexual variants according to deviation from a norm. And for librarians, the mission was to organize the entire universe of knowledge of which sexuality was necessarily a part. And both contributed to wider projects in organ organizing citizenries. It seems that LOC, the Library of Congress, uh, drew literary warrant for establishing its hierarchies and naming practices regarding sexuality at the end of the 19th century from Richard von Kraft Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis, which is widely regarded as a foundational sexological taxonomic work. Translated into English in the same decade that the library moved into its current Jefferson building and developed its present classification system, it provided the basis for establishing a scaffold in support of the scientific study of sexuality. Indeed, it is those same hierarchies that provide the essential structures by which we organize many of our libraries today. And so although the classification has changed in certain ways, removing the indentation um, that shows that homosexuality is hierarchically beneath um, sexual perversion or abnormal sex relations, um, essentially the structures are basically the same. Okay, so I'm getting a stop. So I'll leave it up there. Um, I'll just leave my, um, with my concluding sentence. So I'm interested in the relationship between library classifications, the disciplines they organize, the arrangement, the potential encounters they enable or inhibit, and the ways in which a book's life, its circulation and reception, and readers are tied to the ways that it's cataloged and classified. Thank you to our panelists for a, a truly wonderful session, and uh, I have the unenviable duty of summarizing what they said. Um, the Red Book School Enterprise of the past five years or so has moved, uh, I think, from the Anglo-American tradition of bibliography, I think Freds and Bowers, uh, to bibliography among the disciplines, think, think Melissa Adler. Um, what is a book to us, ourselves, is how we classify it. Um, but more importantly, um, how, is it, how it has been classified for us. Melissa says that library classifications are performative texts that affect the circulation of other texts. Um, and that cataloguing withholds information and stifles interpretation. And anyone who's read Freds and Bowers might agree with that statement. <laughs> um, Theorizing book cataloging uh, is to the great advantage of the discipline and deeply fundamental. And um, it isn't going away. 
uh, I, I think the issues might change with technology and, and the, the debate might soon move from what informs classification schemes to, to what informs searching algorithms. Um, and I think that just as um, just as we have to be careful about, about, about the preconceptions behind certain cataloging schemas, then we need to be careful about algorithms that actually define con concepts for, for browsing. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been are familiar with you know, uh, which is a really interesting um, uh, way of browsing information in libraries. Uh, just coming up, it'll, it'll, it'll hit your screen soon. Um, so Melissa's, Melissa's paper stands slightly apart from the others. The others were about breaking down silos in the history of, 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 of the book. Um, and indeed, uh, from, for Megan and for Caroline, who devised this workshop, that was their intention. Um, I know in my own small field, you know, I was thinking that art historians and historians of typography and manuscript scholars, they, they all approach the same thing in completely different ways without talking to each other, namely in this case, paper. Uh, but this is a very small thinking. I was thinking far too small. And, and, and with Birgit and Paul and Amy, you know, they've, 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 they've sort of blown open the whole... The whole, the whole world of bibliography, and we have moved so far, I think, from, from the Anglo-American tradition of bibliography to bibliography amongst the disciplines that it's hugely exciting. You know, Birgit wants to, us to expand our definition of the book to consider indigenous book history, and she herself has acknowledged that the field of book history uh, is incredibly important, and of course we need to acknowledge that book history uh, in North America belongs centuries before the arrival. Of, Euro of, of Europeans and the Anglo-American tradition of bibliography. Um, Amy Holmes, Tag Chung Darpa, yeah, the influence of location and peripherality in Tibet. Um, it, I thought it was fascinating that knowledge distribution is not the same, isn't, is, is not is not centered in the same way areas that politics are, and that the periphery plays its part. Because, of course, in a, in a sense, that's where cultures intersect and experiment happens. Um, it doesn't necessarily happen in the capitals at all. Uh, and I love the idea that the first Tibetan newspaper was published in Kalimpong in India in 1904 using lithographic technologies from Scottish Christians. I thought it was totally wonderful. Um, the use of, dumb, of the Dumchik plant in Sikkim and the importance of local materials in defining how books are made automatically made me think of the importance of papyrus in the Nile Delta. And as Amy herself acknowledged, that brings us to Paul's Dilly project um, for providing a wider context for her paper and indeed a context that, that, that you know, will embrace. Uh, unfortunately, it won't. It won't embrace Birgit, but it will embrace most of the rest of us. Uh, the manuscript across pre-modern Eurasia, um, the big ancient Mediterranean, and beyond. 
Um, it's beautifully comparative. It's wonderful. I think it'll be a great pedagogical site. I'm wondering when it's going to be ready for business. Um, <laughs> Two years. Okay. And the possibility, I think, is, is for much, much more that allows for the possibility of being truly data-driven um, and collecting large amounts of data uh, across traditionally siloed histories. And I think that that could be really really exciting. Um, so I thank you all. I think they were wonderful papers and I think it's been a wonderful session. And shall I open it to the floor? Yeah. Do we want to um, have our panelists come yes. to the front? Yeah. Um, we found in other sessions it can be difficult to both hear and it's not very nice to speak to someone who you can't see. So if you're responding to a question, we ask that you stand. Did you said the massive Eurasia. Yes. And they also included part of North Africa. I'm surprised they named that continent in the U.S. Yeah, so uh, that's an ongoing question for us in terms of the title of the database versus the seminar. So as a, somebody who does the ancient Mediterranean worlds, I tend to put North Africa as part of the Mediterranean and therefore part of Eurasia, and then Ethiopia as part of the Red Sea trade, uh, Sudan, Egypt, part of that. So those are, for our period, that's the sort of regions that we're looking at. However, I've also seen people talk about Eurasia and Africa. So moving forward, we're dealing with that. Yeah, yeah I guess it's a matter of nomenclature to me, you know, erasing the name. Yeah. Mind problematic. Sure. <clears throat> yes. I have a question for Amy, actually. So um, I'm very interested in your uh, idea of space and the way you um, kind of brought it out for your presentation. But I'm also wondering, because uh, these uh, regions that you show, uh, and primarily um, the various Tibetan Buddhist centers in Northeast India, so there was a very early tradition of not just producing um, you know, block prints, but also preserving it. And it's not just these Buddhist monasteries, but other religious uh, monasteries as well who would have these preservation uh, houses or storehouses within the monastery where they would um, where they would store these things and if one can then look at a longer history of this one could trace it even down to the present because very interestingly a lot of these materials have been magnificently uh, you know, preserved despite tremendous natural disasters that cause havoc in, in these spaces. And there, I mean, the whole question of environment is very, very important when we look into uh, manuscripts and, you know, block prints that are preserved in these spaces. So I was thinking how could you kind of emplace them within their spatial location um, and uh, you know, and, and read read them. Um, and also, a, a slight aside about the, the, the local uh, production thing, because it is so central to Nepal, it is so central to Assam, so central to, you know, Sikkim. But then also, uh, you know, if you talk to these uh, people who are preserving the wood blocks or uh, this kind of materials, they would constantly tell you that the wood is coming from Tibet. And it doesn't, 
really matter to them it is or it isn't. It, it becomes something else. It is, since it's coming from Tibet, it gets that sort of a sacrosanct, you know, value to itself as well. So then there's, there's also a change in value of these objects as well, you know, over time. I'm just wondering how you would well, um, thank you for your question. I feel weird to stand up and just sort of give it to the sake of the people at the back. Thanks for your question. Um, to take the latter one first, the idea of the connections to Tibet being so important, uh, absolutely um, part of these interesting stories and how things become maybe less valuable if they're not Tibetan. But at the same time, a lot of these local areas in Nepal um, and in parts of today we call it Arunachal, they pay taxes to their respective governments using paper from their area. Um, a colleague of mine, June Canary, who's done work in the Lhasa archives that are closed, you can't go to the Lhasa archives um, for the most part unless you're really well connected in China, um, found that there were these big bundles of paper that were still there that were from Sikkim, with, with British stamp marks on them from Sikkim from the early 20th century. Um, so I think that where people got their paper from was actually often not these political centres. I think this was always historically the case. But the story of where they come from is something different, absolutely. I think that's really important. The, the stories about where the technology comes from and about where these objects are from and how that is to be given value is a very important point. Thank you. Um, and as for the first question about the storage centres, um, yeah, this is a fascinating thing that these storage centres are still there. It's something that connects non-Buddhist communities as well. I'm um, thinking about your paper this morning um, on Assam and uh, the um, different uh, communities of, of monastics um, there and how they also were responsible for preserving. A really interesting counterpoint to this recently though has been the emergence of digitisation technologies um, because I actually recently was in Arunachal and I went to the famous Taoan printing monastery and I found there that the monks had recently thrown out all of their woodblocks. They went and chucked them in a river. And I said to them, why did you do that? And they said, well, it's all digitised now, so why should we have our own copy? They're kind of annoying and expensive to look after. And they're really dusty, and they take up space in the termite season, so we threw them out. Um, and then some of them were kind of going, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done that, but what to do? Um, so it's kind of interesting as well, this, this idea, you know, they chucked it in the river because the river's spirits merit, and so it's not a complete waste of the merit. But, yeah, I think the emergence of these new technologies is raising really interesting questions now about those storehouses and about... Um, whether or not they can maintain themselves without the historical forms of patronage that were present, that were necessary. So I think that's a really interesting question. Thank you. Can I actually ask a question that spans across all of you? Unless you have a question that spans, do you have a question that spans oh. then? Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, I'll ask a span question yeah, and then, yes. okay. So listening to you all, on a panel called Comparative Histories of the Book, I was wondering if there is a way to define book that actually encapsulates all the ways that you all are talking about book, um, and in what way actually using, conversely, the word book to cover all of these different things is actually maybe a problem. So is there a way to, like, is, there, is the book actually what you are all talking about? And is it the same book? Is there a definition of that book? Or is, is that, are we just like voicing all of you all into one panel and you actually do not have comparative histories because you're not actually comparing the same thing? Does that make sense? Yes? I'm just carrying on the thing with Paul Burkett's presentation. And thank you very much. So, you know, so you were saying book history should expand to include a wiki done. 
Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the other way. What about book history as an episode in our wiki grant? Yeah, so it could just be shifting the yes. emphasis of it. Mm -hmm. So that is what's on the table. So I guess uh, maybe I should speak first as uh, somebody who's encountered this question. Uh, mobility is a major issue, and people will often make a distinction between inscriptions and books, but you know that's not necessarily a very helpful one in many cases, especially because some inscriptions on a bronze uh, copper or copperware uh, object is completely portable as well. And often the texts that are carried on an inscription, be it stone uh, or bronze or whatever, are often uh, copied on books, as uh, uh, you know, in the Mediterranean, what we might think of as a papyrus roll or codex. So there's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, puzzling spaces that have caused us to. Uh, in, the, in the initial phase of collecting our database, um, you know, we're taking a very broad approach. So uh, it's an issue. I don't have a good answer. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting because actually, so Awikikan uh, is sort of an instrument for recording and telling and so forth. And so you, you know that I do all this work on writing and, and uh, you know, scholars on writing who wants to expand that definition, as, as I do, right, from alphabetic script to other forms of, you know, indigenous uh, American literacies, I will often get this sort of, well, don't call it writing, call it inscription practices or, you know, uh, um, technologies for the recording and transmission of it. And, and none of those are inaccurate. They're just unwieldy. And if I show up and say, I'm a scholar of technologies of inscription, of it, no one's going to think that I'm looking at writing. They're just, it just, even though, uh, particularly at the, in, the, in this era uh, of digitization and so forth, we really are dealing with a very diverse set of, you know, technologies of inscribing and transmitting. And so it's interesting because Awikikan actually could be a, a comprehensive term that could include the book among many other forms of inscription. And I like the way you think, I don't know what your name is? Isabel. Isabel. So in the way that I uh, organize in my book, sort of the history of writing and, and in a sense the history of the book, it is actually to look at the ways in which sort of a long history of writing and and, and uh, inscribing and all that kind of thing, and looking at the ways in which alphabetic script and, and European technologies are incorporated into this longer history. So rather than, so, so sort of decentering the European angle and, and simply looking at it from uh, the Americas, with the arrival of alphabetic script being absolutely, you know, momentous and also being adapted very enthusiastically, just as today, of course, uh, digital technology is being adapted very enthusiastically by Native people as well as everybody else. Um, and it's interesting because sitting here, I was actually surprised at how, you know, in, in a sense relevant the different conversations. Both I thought, wow, someone more capable than me should do a project like yours for the Americas. I think that'd be so interesting, the pre-modern, you know, um, 
I don't know who would do it, but you know. And, and in terms of your focus on, on space, uh, that's actually a, a real crux of, for example, Lisa Brooks's work, right? And so um, indigenous studies would jive very well there. And, and the, the, the ways in which, now I don't know so much about library technology, right? But the ways in which, the terms by which you can search for and discuss, you know, really frame our entire analytic uh, approach. And so in that sense, it was, it was really interesting to sit and hear the other, um, the other presentation. So I don't know that that gets across. But I mean, you know, in a sense, I think that when we say the book, it sounds pretty narrow, but of course, actually we mean the book, the manuscript, the papyrus scroll. I mean, there were palm leaves up there. I looked at some of that, and I thought that looks very similar to some of the materials from, say, uh, the Americas. And so Function, it, it functions really in the field much more capaciously than, than the word might suggest. So that'll bring, that'll bring uh, Amy and Paul and Birgit into the book. I'm not sure about your notion, Melissa, and, and, and classification itself as a book, which seemed much more disembodied to me mm -hmm. as you were describing it. Is that right? Yeah, so okay, I think, so I'm thinking off the top of my head, and I've thought about this in terms of classification as a document especially because in information studies, we think in terms of documents all the time. Um, but in terms of thinking about the book, I mean, I, I was quite literally looking at, you know, printed volumes for this early, earlier classification research. I mean, those were, they were in book form. Mm -hmm. um, and I think where this becomes interesting is that where you're talking about connecting it to the algorithms and so on, nowadays, um, as far as I know, the Library of Congress doesn't anymore print its classification system, the Library of Congress class shelf classification, but it's updated regularly in, an, in a digital form. But it's harder to do the kind of tracing that, that yeah. I'd like to do to like sort of see how it's changed over time. It's a little bit harder to do that now. And with algorithms, you can't. You can't see what Google's up to. You don't know what categories it's designating. You don't know how the public use of um, the search engine is influencing the, our, our search results, right? And, and the algorithms itself, and how it's ranking things, and so on. And so they're all, I think, related to this question of uh, bookishness in a certain way in that I think it, it calls into question, yeah, what does the book do? It does, is there something about the form or, or something like that that allows us to do the, the history of any thing that we're talking about differently, right? Or, I mean, there's all kinds of questions that come to mind, but off the top of my head, I think it actually fits. I think so. <laughs> I, I had thought about whether it should be comparing material texts. Um, I am not sure we would have gotten applications from all of you. I doubt Melissa would have mm -hmm. set and just swapping that form, replacing book with material text opens it up. It allows for certain discourses and then others not. And maintaining the notion, do we open the notion of book or do do we set it beside other um, other materials, um, recording devices mm -hmm. of various kinds, perhaps textual recording, the writing um, surfaces to get different productive um, comparisons and contrasts, uh, 
contrasting in different ways. Yeah. Although, if I can, I'll just tell you, to me, this is really interesting to hear that these classifications come to, until recently, in the form of a book. Right, so I had no idea, and I would have never thought about classification being related to the form of a book, and, and that now changing. Um, and, and of course, I'm listening to that thinking that also means, in a sense, that there's a narrative about exactly these books in yes. those classification catalogs, which, which, I mean, I find incredibly fascinating. And yeah, no and so these classification systems, and that's what I do. I try to find the narrative in the system itself. Mm -hmm. And I treat it as a book mm -hmm. that tells the story mm -hmm. of, yeah. you know, how a, uh, so in the Library of Congress classification, it's how the, the United States is really building um, a body of knowledge mm -hmm. and organizing that knowledge to really it, it, to fit into a national In terms, of, in terms of digitization, digitization actually through crosswalking and, and, and authority files is, is really well positioned to allow us to do this crosswalking. And I think that on the whole it works rather well. Um, yeah, the Tibetan monks, they, they, they didn't have enlightenment, did they? Uh, that, 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 that is a problem. 
and I think it's a problem that um, that we really we really do have to address, or we're going to lose massive material culture when we when we as we, as we as we share the digital image and digital technology. But if you have a massive digital database, you can't just search it, right? It's data you can't find. So one one of the more exciting uh, seminar discussions we had was a bunch of specialists in the Chinese uh, paper scroll and then the Greco-Roman papyrus roll, and we basically just took them all apart metaphorically and did uh, compare and contrast in a kind of classic simplified physical structure way. And there were some similarities that we didn't expect. Uh, on the whole, though, everybody was way more comfortable thinking of these as two separate units. So there's a roll versus a scroll, and we're going to keep it that way on the database, even though uh, that might mean that in terms of physical structure, a lot of similarities there and especially uh, thinking about this for potentially a, a high school usership or something like that, uh, you know, that might uh, cause more confusion in some ways. Of course, it opens up uh, other possibilities for them, but it's a, it's a difficulty that uh, we decided to uh, respond conservatively to uh, rather than try to uh, classify these as the same thing and then have them, uh, you know, uh, appear as such to users who might not know that. The one thing that I was thinking as I heard you say that and that I was thinking about your comment as well is so I participated in, a, in an NEH um, workshop on digital native studies and uh, the one thing that I remember more than anything from that workshop that absolutely shocked me was that one of the sort of presenters said that digital storage does not last forever, and that in fact it has a rather short shelf life. So unless it sort of gets, I don't know, renewed or something, it's it, it can be less than a decade. And so if you, if you chuck the material object, you may completely lose. So <laughs> that was a horrible thing, you know, sort of like very scary to hear. So, yeah, because we tend to think of digitization as now it's just there forever, and of course it isn't. But also having broader conversations with communities about what it means because mm -hmm. I know the number of monasteries that have had their stuff all digitized in Bhutan and in Northeast India and they often, because it's outsourced, they bring people in and maybe a couple of people do training. It's kind of afterwards, well, okay, that's done. It's not really something that they go talk to the monastic elders about because of language difficulties, I think, in terms of what I've seen. I think a lot of times literally getting people to translate this stuff, which is really hard when and, you know, for example, Bhutia language in Sikkim, we don't have a word for digitize. So therefore, what do we do when we don't have the technology? So I think it takes, it's wonderful to have the technology, but the kind of other stuff that comes with it that needs to be done um, to, to facilitate the conversations of, of value and being able to understand different types of value and different needs for preservation. So those months they chucked them out because they didn't have anywhere else to put them. That's a legitimate concern for them. And so kind of having different... Uh, stakeholders who have yeah. who can balance those understandings of, of what's necessary and what's needed. We have time for one more question. Please. Yeah, I think what I find really interesting in this session is the kind of tension between the, uh, the impulse of numbers and the impulse of splitters. So in the case of the post digitization process, I definitely see the impulse of numbers. And in the Bridges uh, paper, I saw the, the kind of the uh, different uh, direction. So I was wondering if the um, 
how is, is, yeah, I, don't, I know that is not an easy answer, but would it be the comparative orchestra itself would be possible, considering this kind of, yeah, I remember we, we had this kind of conversation with Paul before, but yeah, the, the approach is the parachutist and the approach is the tropical hunter. So how can we orchestrate those two different courses as the, the kind of scholars of comparative studies? So is it, so you're asking, is comparative uh, book history even possible? Is that your, is that a, what you're asking? Did I get that right? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean to be pessimistic, but. No, I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make sure that, uh, the, yes. So that's, we have, uh, we're actually at the end of time, so we could we could spend like two minutes answering the question, is, is or we can, uh, Isabel can answer it for us. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's also much more about the format, you know, and how to have comparative conversations which are difficult. So I think, you know, we're all very keyed into the sort of, you know, the ping pong Q&A backwards and forwards. And I think we've got to radically rethink that because the traditional, you know, Q&A format, paper, 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 doesn't lend itself to producing productive comparative conversations. So I think one has to completely rethink the format. Um, and it's a challenge, but I think it can be done in quite interesting ways. We, I will, I will confess that when Megan and I originally planned this, what we wanted, what we proposed, was that we would all pre-circulate our papers um, ahead of time and pre-circulate them to the audience who were interested in it. So that way, it would be less of a presentation Q and A process and more of a, okay, now we have these case studies. Let us talk about what it is that we're learning from each other. Uh, what strategies, what methods, where are, um, like you were saying, Paul, about um, rolls and scrolls, did yes. I get that right? Rolls yes. and scrolls, uh, you know, like just doing that basic work. And then we realized as we got close to the, to the conference that we had not actually set up such a mechanism for, <laughs> like that we had the idea, but not the actual mechanism, technology, structure for that. And so I guess I would say within a larger yes. conference yes, that has like its this. own yes. framework and its own way of yes. access yes. to the distribution list, et cetera. Um, yes. that, that there became a tension between the ideal of <laughs> having not an intensive workshop, but a more open workshop setting. But yeah, I think new yeah. forms of scholarly discourse are basically necessary for this kind of work. So I think um, Paul's model is an amazing example that I think we, other than Amy, the rest of us are all totally jealous of. Yeah. No, the, the whole workshop, I'll say, the whole workshop was an amazing model of actually making, and it was particularly funny because all these people who spent all this time studying these books had to sit there and make them and it was really harsh. It kind of gives you a whole new, a whole new idea about how hard some of that was. So it was absolutely a great model for bringing people together for this conversation. So I guess the summary is of our session that comparative histories of the book are possible, but uh, in a different, uh, it could be done more robustly in a different setting than this. So we encourage you all to go forth to produce <laughs> models of comparative book history and to invite us to them because they sound really productive and fantastic. Thank you. To our